Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Galatians 5, 25, 6 through 10. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Doug, uh, Doug doesn't need a mic, but we give him one anyways. Uh, we set him up for failure and put the mic way behind him too, so that was fun. A um, little different morning for us. We're still here in the hallway. I'm not going to make any promises when we'll get back into the gym, but we've enjoyed meeting here. It's been a little more chaotic, but actually it ends up being simpler as we keep doing it this way. We're going to make some changes, though, too. I'll let John talk about that a little later with communion. We're going to get to take communion again after many weeks. And then uh, Patrick's out as well. He's preaching at another church this morning, filling in for one of our friends, Matt, over at Crossway in Kingwood. And so be praying for him as he teaches God's Word as well. Um, if you've been following along with us in the Bible reading plan, we're getting into the third quarter of this year, and we printed some of those plans because it started yesterday for the third quarter. Um, we printed those and put them back by the coffee. So if you need one of those, pick that up so you, that you can start off July continuing on. If you're up to date, you've read the story of Absalom. If you remember that story, probably not one of your favorites, if I'm being honest, but I read that this week. And as I read about Absalom, he was focused. He was a visionary. He didn't let things get him down. Uh, scripture says that he had no blemish on him. I don't know why it says this, but they felt the need to say from his foot to the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was, he was spotless. He was the most handsome in all of Israel. 
And he was persistent, he was patient, he was calculated, and he was able to rally Israel around his cause. And then it says he comforted the people at the city gates when they had grievances or problems. So as they walk through to share with the government of how they had been wronged, he consoles them. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13, it says, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And so if I were to stop there, this seems to be like a guy that we'd pray all of our sons to grow up to be, right? He looks like just a, a good dude, a man of the people. And then my thoughts were with uh, a little bit of Lee Greenwood playing lightly in the background. I'm going to walk into that voting booth, and I'm casting my vote for that guy, right? I'm, I'm voting for Absalom. However, if you've been reading and you know this story, that's misleading. If that's all I were to present to you, he was a bad dude. He, he murdered his own brother right before this chapter. He obviously, this would have caused a riff in the family. I can't imagine like showing up to the white elephant gift exchange at mom and dad's and be like, hey, right? You can't, it, it caused some tension there. And so for many years, he didn't speak to his family. And it says that he actually flees the city. But his dad loved him. He hurt. He did not like to see what his son's had gone through. And so many years later, he invites him back. His dad invites him back into the city. And you can almost see this as a good storyline to a movie or a book of this redemption that's going to happen. That the father forgives him. He's consoled. and He's brought back into the family. He's extended grace. But it takes a turn. Absalom, he grew hungry. He saw the influence that he had, and he starts to cater to it. And if you're reading that story right now, he grows hungry for power. And so instead of submitting to his king, to Israel, and having their best in his heart, he actually starts to campaign against his people, against his king. And this king happened to be his own father, King David, a man that we know was established by the Lord and had God's heart. So as I'm reading that, I see Absalom, he's, he's, this, he's stealing, he's this thief. And it wasn't of possessions, but of glory, right? He places himself central to the people. He had their hearts, and he puts himself in a position that he was never meant to be in. He's a con artist, too. He said that for four years, he campaigned against his dad, stirring up the people away from what God had planned for Israel, and he even uses the Lord's name as he does this. He's super sly, and he's undermining these people, manipulating the very things that God had given to him. He had opportunity. He had the relationships that would have set him up well, but he squanders it. And so in light of our passage today, he, he's sowing these seeds of selfish gain. We get this picture that we're going to enter into in chapter 6 of Galatians of this kind of farming analogy. And Absalom starts to reap the benefits of what he sowed. And so what God is teaching us through the life of Absalom is also what we're learning through the book of Galatians. It's this simple law of nature that whatever we sow, we will reap. And as Doug referred to in verse 25, going back to what John preached last week, it describes this war that is happening between our flesh and the spirit in us. And it's this call on our lives to crucify those things of the flesh, to let go of ourselves and put Christ foremost. 
And it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then our verses today start in verse 26, the last verse, which most people will put that, they say that should be the first verse of chapter 6, but it's a letter, so we're just going to keep reading it together. Paul starts to switch and address their relationships, and he starts off in verse 26 of our text today by saying, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And I read this line by Tim Keller referring to chapter 6. He says, this is talking about a heart condition in verse 26 that needs to be addressed at the behavioral level. And the last part, which is what Patrick will close us out with next week, this last part talks about how the heart condition can be solved by the gospel at the identity level. And so what, what's the heart issue that Keller's referencing in this quote? It's what we're looking at today in verse 26, starting off, that we are conceited. That if we let conceit take over, it affects the way that we behave. It flows into our relationships at the behavioral level. And that plays out first here, as we'll read in the last verse, in the household of God. And so that's where I want to take us today. We're going to look at if we let our identity rest in anything else but Christ, it's going to cause mass chaos between us, you and I, uh, friends and family, moms and dads, kids and family. So before we hop in, I want to pray. I want to ask God to work as we study his word here. God, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for the faithfulness of your church. These are my friends and our family, and we're growing, learning to trust each other the same as in our own homes, as friends or housemates or parents and children. God, I pray this morning as we open up your word that this would be a place of rest. Father, that you would bring healing to our bones, that you would fix wrongs. God, that you would let us see truth revealed. And if we're the ones that are needing that this morning, that we would have a heart to hear it and repent. God, we love you. We trust you. We ask you to speak and move this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so first, Paul shows us how not to relate to one another. Is that verse 26 says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so it starts with our perception of ourselves. The word conceit also means vain glory, self-consumed, blinded. And so it's this picture of Absalom. Uh, this Greek word that is used there is kenondoxis, describing someone who has a vision of themselves that is empty, vain, or false not rooted in the truths of God and the cross of Christ. And so if we are to live in this way, it leads to one or two places that we see in that text, in that verse. It says we will provoke one another or envy one another. Provoke, it has this meaning or of challenging someone, like stepping into the ring as a boxer. It's that we're so sure of ourselves that we're, we want to bow up a little bit and say, come on at me then, Right? That I, I know my worth, and so I'm willing to say, I will belittle you. I will take you down, is that word picture that we get when we look at provoke. Or Paul says that our conceit leads to envy. 
And envy is a little more simpler. It just means to look upon something. And so we're essentially staring at something so long that we become consumed by it. And if it's a person, we start to feel inferior. Provoke provides this, I feel superior, but envy provides this, I feel inferior, so I start to hate you. I hate this thing. It makes me feel lesser than. And so conceit leads to envying or proving ourselves, which neither end well in the household of God. However, going back to verse or chapter 5, when we're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit is constantly placing our focus on and our identity in the Lord. And so entitlement and envy, when that rises up in us, and if I know you, and I do, and you know me, that will rise up in us. We do get there sometimes. But if we're walking by the Spirit, it's quickly choked out by the glory of God and the fruit of the Spirit. And so that's why Scripture says that in this world we're aliens. We're literally different than any other people group. We are foreign. We have true fellowship, unity, love, charity. And that doesn't exist in any culture, country, nationality, or other religion on this planet. Because without the love of God advocating for you and I freeing up the men and women of God, then we can't dwell in unity. So Paul addresses first in our text how not to treat each other. Our conceit leads us to be fellow competitors in the ring, which was never God's intent. And so if that's true, if we, our identity is in Jesus Christ, we are children or heirs together in the kingdom of God, then second, Paul shows us or addresses how we should treat each other. So we'll move on into chapter 6, verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so if we aren't driven by conceit, but rather love, we know that we will bear with each other because love bears all things. Verse 2 makes the assumption, if you're looking there, one, that we have burdens. It says bear one another's burdens. And two, that we should not bear them alone. It says bear one another's. And then as I'm reading this, I think we'll, we, we easily in our flesh could use other scripture to combat this. And say, well, actually though, Psalm you know, 55, 22, that's one I memorized as a, as a younger guy, that we are to uh, cast our cares upon the Lord, Right? And it also declares in God's word that Jesus took the burden and sin through the death and resurrection. Or he took our our burdens through his death and resurrection. And so why do we need to give our burdens or share our burdens with other people? God, God is sufficient. But using this is out of context because it neglects the truth that Paul is sharing in Galatians. That one of the ways we cast our cares upon the Lord And how God comforts us through distress is through the fellowship of believers. James says that by allowing others into our burdens and our mess, it brings healing. Paul himself, if you read any letter, typically at the beginning and the opening or the closing, he's constantly modeling this, commending the churches. Some of his friends were Titus and Timothy, and we know that because he encourages them and praises them in the congregation of the church. And he has so many others that he names specifically because they, they bore his burdens. They helped him. They carried 
his weight alongside him. And so human friendship bathed in service and love is necessary for us. And by coming alongside those who are carrying heavy loads in this life, the scripture says we fulfill the law of Christ. I came across this quote. Martin Luther says, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones, sturdy enough, that is, to carry heavy burdens. And so I want to tell you that you are stronger than you think. That you have been ordained by God, the creator of this world, to carry heavy things. And I think we often run from pain and struggle because we identify as weak, but scripture is identifying you as strong. Some of us just don't like conflict. There's conflict, I'm out, right? But often God is calling us not away from pain and conflict and struggle, but right into the thick of it. In studying this passage this week, really the last three weeks, it might be my favorite so far of the last nine years here. And as I'm reading through it's really other believers in the faith at different times in history. I, I read through some Paul Tripp and Henry Nowen and Tim Keller and John Stott and so many others. And it's so encouraging because as they're reading, they're stirred up in their faith. They're reading how God has ordained you and I, believers, to be his mouthpiece to the nations. And Stott says this, it shows that to love one another as Christ loved us may lead us not to some heroic, spectacular deed of self-sacrifice, but to the much more mundane and unspectacular ministry of burden bearing. And so that means that yes, your life might be busier. Yes, you might not always get to do what you wanna do. You might actually have to let people into your home, right? It's hard for some of us. You might actually have to talk to your neighbors or walk through really messy, long seasons with people. But God made us for this. Strong bones, as Luther says, strong backs to stand up under the weight of cancer. We've walked through addictions, conflicts, traumas, exhausting years of financial burden or depression. Yet as we walk by the Spirit, advocating for our brothers and sisters, or maybe letting them advocate for us at different times. As we submit to each other, the fruit of the Spirit takes over. And that Spirit allows us to push our agenda to the side. And as Paul has already said in Galatians, it actually requires us to crucify it, to put to death our plans, which leaves no room for conceit. And so verse three says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If we, are, we think we are something when we are not, if we think too highly of ourselves, then the idea of bearing someone else's burdens seems beneath me, right? And if that's how I identify myself as better than you, above you, then I will reject this holy service to you all day long. It's not going to happen. And so conceit this false view of myself leads to deceit, a false view I create for you. I'm putting on a show at this point. And so verses four through five, if we move on, says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone 
and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So I got here and I was like, wait a second. I thought we were supposed to bear each other's burdens and now Paul is saying, do it yourself. But verse two and verse five, they seem to be in conflict. And so this is why we walk through books of the Bible together. I think it's so important as a church to study God's word, to have to slow down, to camp out on some of these verses because verse two the word burden, when it's sharing that, means burden. It's an extremely heavy load we cannot bear. Uh, my thought walking up here just now was looking at this thing. If you're listening to this online, it won't make sense, but you guys are with me right now staring at this wooden cross that I'm sure weighs several hundred pounds. And if someone said, hey, take it from here to there, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. But if I said, hey, Matt, Nate, Christian, Doran, let's do this, I think we could get it pretty far in a lot quicker time, right? That's the idea that we get in verse 2. However, the word fortune is used in verse 5, an entirely different word to describe our own load. It's, it's not something too heavy for me to move on my own, but rather it encapsulates this idea that if I were to pick up a pack, it's like a backpack, and it's a small amount of provision to be cared for only by the person who is carrying it. And as I wrote that, I kind of had this picture in my head of if, we, if someone were to, if two of us were to try to pick up a backpack and wear it at the same time, right? You see us like fighting over the straps. That's silly. Like that, it doesn't make sense. It's unnecessary. So yes, we are to share each other's burdens like verse two commands, but this word in verse five implies this load or task that is not meant to be shared, but it's specific to the individual, is almost God-ordained for you. And one day, we'll give an account before the Lord for that load that God has specifically given to us to carry. And so that's why in verses 4 and 5, it's foolish to compare to our neighbor because my pack's for me, your pack is for you. Which is another reason why walking by the Spirit is so necessary to give me discernment to give us discernment of how do we help each other? How do we decide when I'm carrying this load alone, when I share it with you? And so we can know as we walk by the Spirit how we should and shouldn't relate to each other is what Paul's given us parameters here for. And then thirdly, after addressing how we should and shouldn't relate to each other, I want to go back to verse 1 because it shares a really specific relational dynamic that may present itself. And if you're around here long enough, I know it will. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so this address is not this ongoing bearing of burdens or our own personal load to bear, but a scenario where we find a brother or sister caught or overtaken in sin. And so Paul gives us a clear blueprint of what to do, who is to do it, and how we should go about doing that. The what here, what do I do when either I'm caught in sin, what should you do for me, or when I see you struggling in sin, Paul simply says we are to restore that brother. And that restore means to put in order. It's like 
If you've ever broken a bone, not a fun thought, but we've got to reset that. It's painful but necessary. In order for things to heal and be right, that has to take place. This isn't a, a, a passive word. It's hands-on. I'm not going to probably break an arm and just sit at my home. We're, we're, we're taking an action plan. We're going to the ER. We're going to the hospital. It's a call to action. And Paul doesn't give us what each scenario is going to look like. Uh, Jesus gives us a little bit fuller image in Matthew 18. He tells us to go to them privately first, call them out specifically and clearly in the hopes of gaining is what Jesus says, gaining that brother. And Paul here says a different word, in hopes of restoring that brother. So it's hopeful. It's filled with hope for the person caught in transgression. We're not belittling them. We're not shaming them. But our heart is broken and our hope is that they are restored. So Paul tells us also who is to do that. We are to restore, and the person to do the restoring is, if you'll look at that verse, you who are spiritual. And so you may ask, well, if we're believers, aren't we all spiritual? And I think the answer is yes, we all have the spirit if we are believers. However, Paul is using a distinction here, using it more as if we go back to last week, chapter 5. The idea that we saw that the maturing believer who walks by the Spirit is led by the Spirit so that he manifests the fruit of the Spirit. So if you'll take the analogy of a baby or a toddler, early on in our faith, that's what we look like. I've got a six-month-old and a three-year-old right now, and it's just funny. They're still figuring out how to walk or jump. It's been funny to watch Jules do that, fumbling around learning how to run. It doesn't mean that we aren't believers if we're infants or toddlers in the faith. It just means we are weak as we're growing. I couldn't put on Jules or Jesse, a six-month-old and a three-year-old, the weight that I could put on, right? It would crush them. And so these heavier scenarios like finding a fellow believer in sin and having to call them out, those are hard waters to navigate. So it takes wisdom and discernment, thoughtfulness. And so it's this call to the mature Christian not to be passive, but it's also a call to the less spiritual or newer Christian to pay close attention, to know your limits. And I think that would lend some Christians to say, kind of going back to the conflict, like, oh, conflict? I'm not the guy, right? It gives us an easy out. Sorry, I'm not spiritual. But the irony here is that even the immature Christian who will be more prone to sin than maybe the spiritually mature, he still has the spirit, right? Thus, you still have a role to play. And personally for me, when I'm reflecting back on this, I'm thinking of my time as a new believer in high school or going into college. And I often would walk into these scenarios and I, didn't, I wasn't equipped I didn't feel adequate. People looked down on me because I couldn't speak into their life because I wasn't 20 or 30 or 50 or 80, right? I was a young punk kid. And that's just reality. That's I'm growing in the faith. And so often that led me to pray. I couldn't do anything else. So that's where I learned how to pray. So if a less mature believer sees a brother in sin, even though they are weaker than the mature one, they still will be moved with compassion to see their brother restored, which probably means the role will simply be bringing in a more mature friend 
to help in the conversation or petitioning God in prayer. And so the gospel, what Paul is pushing so hard in this book is saturating the situation, the immature believers or the spiritual or the ones caught in sin. Brothers and sisters looking out for one, each other, one another and addressing the scenario wisely, bringing friends into that conversation who are attuned and listening to the Spirit. And then Paul says how we are to do that. It says it's done, to be done in a spirit of gentleness. That's a fruit of the Spirit. We can't manifest gentleness on our own. Restoration without gentleness, if we see this in this verse, will provide no restoration at all. We, we don't walk into the scenario yelling or shaming. That's why you who are spiritual are the ones to restore a brother. Only a person carrying the overflowing fruit of gentleness, not conceit, not puffed up, not provoking, not envying. And so our ministry of restoration and reconciling people to God is done through the Spirit. And then I got here to verse 6. And I think there's a little bit of a transition. I told John a few weeks back as I was studying the cabin that it seems to me on first read that Paul like kind of ends the letter there and then he rolls into old man status and starts sharing wise proverbs, right? It's like these one-liners that before he goes, hey, I want to share this with you, young man, and he drops these little nuggets of wisdom. But as I, I slowed down and studied a bit more the last few weeks, I saw the same continuing gospel message. It's infused in every one of these verses. And so on first read, if you're looking at that, verse 6 seems to be out of place. Like Paul randomly telling the church to pay their elders and teachers, which we all love to hear, right? When the church is like, hey, we need your money, right? But honestly, and honestly, it might have been an issue with the Galatians. I have no idea. Maybe they weren't. So Paul's throwing that into here. But it doesn't say money. Paul uses the phrase, share all good things. And so we get this root word of quantania. It's the idea of fellowship, community, a right relationship between believers that was to be shared in. And so it's not a standalone verse about money. It's addressing our call to bear one another's burdens and be charitable. That we are teachers and students as fellow heirs in God's kingdom. It doesn't say pay, it says share in this together, unified. And so Paul doesn't spend too much time on this verse. A lot of the scholars and commentaries want to get into it, but I'm not going to. So Paul doesn't say much here. I'm not going to. I'm going to move on to verse 7. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. He will also reap. So Paul's saying, you may be able to trick me, you may be able to trick the person next to you here, but God sees the heart. And so Paul's calling the church away from conceit, away from vanity, and into true quantania, true fellowship. And so a community where we are void of envy and provoking, conceit can't exist. 
in true fellowship and sharing of all good things, as that text says right there, why would there be a need to hide from God or to lie to anybody here? Only someone who was lying to himself would feel the need to lie to God and others, right? And we've all felt that. That's not to put more shame on you, but it's to take a scenario like Absalom or to take Adam and Eve, for example, right? And in their error, it hindered their fellowship. Verse 8 describes it here in our text as reaping seeds of corruption. However, if we put in the work of holiness in the spirit, it says you will reap eternal life. And that opening call to worship, it refers to Jesus as eternal life. So we're not just reaping this long-term awesome benefit. We're reaping life with Jesus in step with God the Father in clear and true fellowship and unity. And so Paul closes out in this continual farming, cultivating analogy in verses 9 and 10 by saying, and let us not grow weary of doing good. I'm going to say that again. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who, uh, who are of the household of faith. James 5, 7 through 8, be a place to go read and advocates advocates the same truth saying, be patient as the farmer waits. Impatience is another fruit of the spirit that apart from the spirit of God, we possess no patience. Therefore, we have no ability to endure. We're not gonna make it. And so we are called through the power of Christ by the working of the spirit to be long suffering. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And then just looking at this, Paul doesn't go into this long list of how, what we will reap or how that's going to turn out. He kind of leaves us to guess what that might, may look like, to discover it on our, on our own. It doesn't say that, um, that, that putting in the work, we're going to get blessing here on this earth even. But it leaves us to the fact, and we see it in our lives, that you putting in this work, doing good may reap others' attention. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you gain a standing in their presence or in their friendship and you bring them into the fellowship of God. Maybe your patient endurance and doing good to fellow believers may teach our own children how to endure. They're going to be the next generation of believers. So by modeling faithfulness and obedience, we're allowing God's church to go out fully equipped, encouraging them, making them better than we are, our faithfulness to the church may slow down the moral rot of society. We see it, right? You being gracious, you being gentle, you being patient might allow space for grace and camaraderie to prevail. It might stop a nation or community from continuing in sin. Your personal faithfulness and hospitality may draw in coworkers and extended family to see and to hope and to long for what they see in you. They see beauty there that doesn't exist in their life, which means that doing dishes and scrubbing toilets 
and folding the million pairs of socks every week, right? That is grade A gospel kingdom work. Writing encouraging letters to friends, buying a cup of coffee may be the push that this community needs to go just one more day and then wake up and do it again, right? So Paul says this this act of laying our lives down, bearing each other burdens, it doesn't start big, it starts small. It starts here, me and you, right? In the household of faith. And so I want us to see that opportunity that we have been presented. It's the opportunity that Absalom missed. He messed up, was given grace, brought back in, and he missed it, right? And so that's the opportunity that we are to give to each other, to stir each other on. And I get excited as I see what God continues to do here. We've walked through a lot. There's been a lot of things and current things that are happening right now. We're learning how to be patient. We're toddlers fumbling and growing. But scripture is making this really bold statement and declaration here that, oh, just wait. There's even more. You've experienced a little. Watch what I do. And so I pray that God would allow us to drop our agendas. I pray that you would give them up every day. The thought goes back to Absalom. He was chasing that crown. If you know that story, he doesn't get it. It doesn't end well for him. And so I, I, my, my hope, my prayer this week is that we would lay those crowns down and maybe we start looking more like seasoned farmers, right? Maybe we're not the Absalom that has no blemish on him, but our, our hands are cracked, right? Our skin is blistered from the sun. Maybe we've got some dirt under our fingernails, but we have strong backs and bones, rallying around each other, hopeful and patient as we sow seeds of good for each other. We're not afraid of hard work or what's to come because we're so confident in the gospel at work. And so Paul's saying, do not, do not give up. Don't grow weary of doing good because one day we will stand before the Father with that pack on our back, led by the Spirit, advocated by Jesus, the Son, and your heavenly Father will speak the words of Matthew 25. So humbling to read this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. God, we long for that. God, that often we're deceived ourselves. And so we seek approval in every other place but you. But I pray that our approval and our worth would be grounded in the cross of Christ. God, I pray that your word would ha have great power as it's working here, right now. That this isn't a show, that I'm not trying to be a wordsmith and put things together that are different than what you're calling us to. That we didn't show up to put on a front and to make good, but even if we did, God, even if we are failing, that you have given us grace to be restored, and I pray as brothers and sisters, we would take up that call on our lives to carry heavy things, to bear each other's loads, 
and yet take up our own as well and keep going. And so I pray that you would give your church rest. I pray that you would give them encouragement. I pray for my own heart that is weary at times. God, that you would remind us that we will reap a good harvest if we put in the work now through your spirit and that you have given us everything to do so. I pray for Patrick as he's preaching your word right now to a group of fellow brothers and sisters that they would be stirred up, not defeated, but reminded of the love that you have for us, displayed through the cross. We love you, we thank you, and we pray this through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Amen.